The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for every good and perfect gift. Lord, we know that you are the Father of lights and you there is no shadow of turning. Lord, I thank you for Cairn University and its presence here over the years, Lord, as an institution that points to you. Lord, help us to be not only women and men who love your word, who read your word, who study your word, but also live it. God, we praise you, and we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but my parents raised me with very traditional Asian values. Obey your parents, do well in school, and practice piano. <laughs> you see, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, I had different interests. But I had this secret that I kept hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. I began living openly as a gay man. I moved, I was living, I'm from Chicago, I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry. After a year, I went home and I broke the news to my parents. Remember, they're not Christian. But interestingly enough, that actually brought my mother to faith and then eventually my father. Well, I went in the opposite direction. While in dental school, I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs. I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Now, to be really clear, not all gays and lesbians do drugs. Not all gay men are promiscuous. Some are, some are not. But unfortunately, that is part of my story. And if I tell you it, I have to be honest about it. And I have to tell you my whole story. But I also want to tell you that when you encounter Christ, he will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like my classmates, I didn't have much money. If I was going to do drugs, I needed to find a way to support my habit. So I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville, and I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad's a dentist. He knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parents should do anyway? To my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother told the dean, and she said, What's not, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. Well, if I could be honest with you, I was not very happy about that decision because I felt like she wasn't on my side. I felt like she was on the school side. So I moved further away from them to the big city and bright lights of, of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. 
And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. My parents had no clue that I was doing drugs, but they knew my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So they tried to reach out to me, love of Christ. I wanted nothing to do with it. They came to visit me one time in Atlanta, and I told them to get out. My dad gave me his very first Bible before he left, and as soon as they left, I took my dad's Bible, and I threw it in the trash can. I wanted nothing to do with God and certainly nothing to do with the Bible. And it was more than obvious after that visit that I was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my parents committed not to focus on the hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over a hundred prayer warriors from the church, from their Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. My mother began to pray a bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years. Once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She would spend hours, hours every morning in her prayer closet, on her knees, reading the Bible, crying out to God, interceding for me, for many, many others. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. <laughs> I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in a federal prison. I'd started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Laddie City Detention Center. So I tried calling home, dreading making that phone call, just imagining the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, Are you okay? No condemnation. No berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice Paul isn't saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath. But it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, God, actually my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you're going to believe it or not, because I hadn't called home in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears. She knew she had to do like that good old hymn says, count your blessings. Name them one by one. 
no matter what storm she was going through, no, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone was a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape. And she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is, is in a safe place compared to before. They called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And this list is longer and taller than she is, both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. And I passed by this garbage can. And as I looked at the trash, I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class, suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by this garbage can. But something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over and picked it up. And it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking, this is the answer to my problems. Actually, I simply thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. <laughs> but as many of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight, and I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. I was handcuffed, I shuffled into her office, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she wrote something on a piece of paper, slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read H-I-V positive. The days after were dark and lonely. I was sentenced to six years, much better than 10 years to life. But news of my HIV status felt like a death sentence. One night I was laying in my bed and I looked up at the metal bunk above me. Someone had scribbled something and it read, if you're bored, Read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, 
the Lord God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Israel, to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in my past, he still had a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual, and God was convicting me of my dependencies, obviously drugs, but within a few months, God delivered me from the bondage of that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols, other dependencies, and there was one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, and it was my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me that the Bible does not condemn homosexuality, and he even gave me a book explaining that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you, from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. I wanted to find any type of a positive information for a monogamous same-sex relationship. So I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made either abandon God and His Word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship by freeing myself from my sexuality, by not allowing my desires to control who I am and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I learned several important lessons. First, I learned that Abstaining from sex is actually possible. I know that might sound weird to you, but remember, I was not raised a Christian, and the world kept telling me it's not, but it actually is. Who knew? Second, <laughs> I learned that sexual abstinence is not going to make me psychotic or sick, no matter what Freud and Oprah say. Third, I realized that after abstaining from sex for a little while, that actually my sexuality does not have to be the core of who I am. See, I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally, and that's true. But don't we as sinners, don't we like to add to God's truth? 
I added, so therefore he doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who say something like, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading the Bible several times, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say it again. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. You see, my identity should not be defined by my sexuality alone. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my sexual desires. My identity is not gay, is not ex-gay, is not even heterosexual for that matter, because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy for I am holy. You know, I had thought in the past that if I were to become a Christian, that I would have to become a heterosexual, that somehow the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation. I would still need to put to death my sin nature every day. So actually, heterosexuality is def as defined is not the goal. And if you think about it, God never commands us, be heterosexual for I am heterosexual. <laughs> but neither did God say, be homosexual for I am homosexual. Rather, God said, be holy for I am holy. So therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That's not the goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin struggle is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, because we will be tempted, we will struggle, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity, because change is not the absence of temptations. God never promises you that, oh, come to Jesus, and you'll never be tempted again. No. Change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling, not whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life, and He called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison, of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and he shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on a ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called home, collected my parents, told them I think God's calling me into ministry, and then I asked him to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of at that time called Moody Bible Institute. But then there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison. I was so excited when I got it, tore it open, began filling it out until I got to the last page where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison, <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So amazingly, I was actually accepted. <laughs> I was released from prison. <laughs> yeah.
I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, received, uh, went on to get my doctorate of ministry uh, in Bethel, Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, Minneapolis. And then back in 2011, I had the incredible honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. So uh, I wrote this together with my mom, uh, and um, she, as a matter of fact, I, I have a policy. I'm, I'm not married. I'm, I'm single. I have a policy. I never travel alone. So actually, my mother's here with me, and so she's back in the back. She waved. She's doing the PowerPoint. So we wrote this together. Praise the Lord. She'll be, she'll be back at the book table. You guys go, have to say hi to her. But she's, she's my prayer warrior. Uh, but anyway, we wrote this together, and uh, she wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two. She was, my mother wrote all the odd chapters. I wrote the even chapters. We wanted to tell you from our own voice the same situation told from two Toldington perspectives. And we've been finding out that our story, which we wrote for the church, has now been used uh, as an evangelistic tool. People are sharing it with unbelievers. Uh, we've even gotten a couple stories, people who have come to faith from it. Um, I have one of my students at Moody. He was in high school, came out dating uh, one of his you know, kids in, in high school, another boy, and dad was a Christian, gave him my book to read. He was so angry he didn't want to read it, and then he read it, and he's... God used it, and now he's at Moody. He's going to ministry. Pretty cool. Christian high schools are using this book, but my newest book called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story is helping us have a better understanding about biblical sexuality because oftentimes when we hear these messages about biblical sexuality, it's something like this. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. And those are important things to talk about, but you know, you can't build a Christian life on God's no. What's God's yes? And biblical sexuality, what I call holy sexuality, is chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. And what I recognize is that is really good news for all. But amazingly, God has given us back, my parents and I, the, the years that the locusts have taken away. My parents and I travel around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and God's truth on this issue of sexuality. And then if that wasn't a big enough blessing, God has a sense of humor, because he's brought me back to Moody, where I'm now teaching in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? <laughs> but God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. Who am I? I mean, that's a question that I think everyone asks themselves at some point in their life. Who am I? I mean, if you think back when you were in grade school or junior high or high school, I'm sure you asked that question. Who am I? I mean, am I, uh, you know, am I kind of who I am according to my, what I do or my sports or my friends? Who am I? People going through midlife crisis ask that question, who am I? Mothers who have all their kids go off to college, they're empty nesters, go through this identity crisis, who am I? For some, self-identity is shaped by family, friends, and culture, or others by always being on their phones. 
interesting. It's interesting. Sometimes people think that we speakers, teachers, can never see what you guys are. Just know, in the classroom, we can always see people that are always on their phones. Just, so just, just saying. Hi. So just know, I mean, like, if you think you're in class, you're passing notes or whatever, teachers see everything, and why they don't say anything is grace. Anyway, okay. So others find their identity in their work, right? I mean, if you ask someone, like, who, who are you? Like adults, you know, I'm a lawyer or I'm a banker. I mean, it's as if that's, like, that's who they are or their sports or their hobbies, Still others find their sole identity in their sexuality. Yet do these substitutes for our identity truly describe who we are or what we do? Let me say it again. Do these substitutes for identity truly describe who we are or what we do or what we experience? And specifically, does sexuality or should sexuality describe who we are? So the answer to this question actually has huge implication, huge implications in our everyday life. It impacts how we think, the choices we make, even the relationships that we build. Our thoughts, our actions are influenced at some level by how we answer this question, who Am I suggesting a close relationship between essence and ethics? Who we are, essence, determines how we live. Ethics. And actually, if you think about it, the vice, vice versa is true. How we live actually will impact who we are. If we have a flawed view of who we are, we will have a flawed view of flawed personal ethic. And even the other way around, obviously. I mean, that's the most obvious. If you have a flawed personal ethic, that will influence, you'll have a flawed view of who you are. So personhood affects practice, and practice affects personhood. So when I lived as a gay man, my whole world was gay. All my friends were gay. Everyone, and they weren't just gay, they were gay men. There, there's this, what, what we see in culture a lot is uh, the gay and lesbian and the trans community are, are all this tight, tight group. And I mean, it's been a while since, since I've been a Christian and since I lived in the gay community, uh, but at least I can say from personal experience, back then, though oftentimes we are a group together, uh, we're quite different. Uh, gay men and lesbian women are generally different. I didn't really get lesbian women. I didn't understand, you know, I, just, I thought they were a little bit crazy. They thought we were crazy. Uh, but anyway, I lived almost all, all my friends were gay. I lived in an apartment, apartment complex that was about 90% gay, gay men. I worked out at a gay gym. I bought groceries at the, what we nicknamed the Gay Kroger. I purchased my new sports car from a gay car dealer. Sexuality was the core of who I was, not just like an aspect of who I was, but the core of who I was, and everything and everyone around me affirmed that. And most importantly, my flesh affirmed that. 
You see, this issue goes beyond just incorrect interpretation of biblical passages. It goes beyond just bad exegesis or a low view of Scripture. It's actually more preliminary than convincing another person or your gay friend or your gay neighbor or coworker that the behavior is sinful. Being gay today means this is who I am. And this reveals actually a deeper philosophical and theological misunderstanding, a faulty presupposition that points to essence, the core of our being. So being gay is no longer about what I'm attracted to or what I desire. If you have a gay friend or maybe a lesbian relative, and you talk to them about, well, tell me more about yourself. Tell me more about you know, your sexu- you know, sexuality. When you say, I'm gay, what does that mean to you? You'll never hear them say, oh, when I say being gay, I mean this is what I do. When I say I'm gay, what I mean is this is what I feel. You know what people say today? When I say I'm gay, I mean this is who I am. Matthew Vines, a gay activist, writes that sexual attraction is simply a part of who you are. And another place, he says, as humans, so as human beings, our sexuality is a core of who we are. So in this conversation around sexuality, this subtle shift from what, what I feel, what I do, from what to who, this is who I am, has created a radically distorted view of personhood. And honestly, if you think about it, I don't know of any other sinful behavior that has been conflated with personhood. If you have a friend who's a liar, we don't think of that person as who he is, but what he does. If you know someone who's a gossiper, that's not who they are, but what he or she does. If there's an adulteress, that's not who she is, but what she does or continues to do. And so when it comes, but when it comes to sexuality, we have made gay to be who we are. But should the capacity, so that's a question, should the capacity for same such attractions really describe who I am, or should it describe how I am? Because in reality, sexuality should not be who we are. So, The term gay and straight, I'm not just talking about gay, I'm just talking about all the terms. If you have opposite such attractions, straight, that's not who you are, but it's how you are. Might this categorical fallacy ultimately distort how we think and live? The terms heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, Gay, straight, bi, turn, listen to this, turn personhood, I'm um, turn desire into personhood. 
turn experience, what we feel and do, into ontology, which then makes our experience reign supreme, and everything else has to bow down before it. So it's, not, it's no longer sola scriptura. Now it's sola experientia. No longer scripture alone, but my experience alone. So why does it matter? Why does it matter who I am? I mean, why does it matter if I say, well, this is who I am? From that flows how you live. Because if this truly is who you are, then we better embrace who we are. If this is who we are and God made you like this, well, then we need to celebrate that. This is a huge, I think this is more foundational. This is where Christians, we all miss. We don't understand why those in the gay community, when we talk about this is sinful behavior, it gets so personal and it's so offensive. Because our gay loved ones, when you say and talk about this is sinful behavior, they don't hear you say what they're doing is sinful. They don't hear you saying that what their desires are pointing away from God. But what they hear is that their whole person from head to toe is reprehensible to God. Sexuality should not be who we are, but how we are. So, if this is not who we are, then who are we? I mean, that's kind of the next question. So, if sexuality is not who we are, and like, you know, my job is not who you are, my, my major is not who we are, my friends is not who I am, then who am I? This is why it's important. And how do we understand, and how does that impact my, our understanding of sexuality? Well, here's the truth. We cannot understand human sexuality until we begin with theological anthropology. Theological anthropology is the is study of humanity through God's eyes. And that means that we're all created in the Im image of God. The Imago Dei comes from Genesis. You can't even get past the first chapter of Genesis 1. No other created being is created in his image. No one, not even angels. We are created in the image of God. Genesis 1:27. Wouldn't it be great though that the Bible just ends there? Genesis chapter 1, the end. It doesn't. It goes on to Genesis 3. And Genesis 3 comes along and and we understand that Adam and Eve sinned. Okay, so what? I mean, they sinned. Well, because of their sin, that threw all of creation in disarray. We call it the fall. We talk about original sin. Original sin is not the actual sin of Adam and Eve. Original sin is the consequence of their sin. And so having that understanding actually greatly helps us understand human sexuality. So how? Well, first of all, it actually rebukes arrogant condemnation. You might have friends, maybe in your church, maybe even maybe one of your relatives, like your uncle 
or grandfather. Like, oh, why do we have to talk about this? It's sin. Those gay people are destroying our country. Sin is destroying our country. People talk about, talk with disdain toward the LGBT community. And when they do, they're not starting with theological anthropology. They're not starting with the fact that every person is created in the image of God. Amen? It doesn't matter whether you know Christ or not. You're created in the image of God. That's a little different from being a son of God, a child of God. Because a child of God means that God has adopted you as a son or daughter. That means you've been reconciled to Him. So not everyone is a child of God yet, but everyone is created in God's image. And so people forget Though they might get it sin, they forget when they treat our gay loved ones, our lesbian neighbors with disdain, they're not treating them as image bearers. So it's important that we start there. Everyone is created in God's image. But second, it avoids an incorrect diagnosis. See, I think Christians, we have diagnosed this incorrectly. For years, we have treated this more as a psychological disease or a developmental disorder. What do I mean by this? How many of you guys have ever heard something like this when people say, the root causes of homosexuality are an absentee father, dominant mother, or abuse in one's childhood? Anyone hear something like that? When we blame our or one sinful behavior on their childhood. You know what that's based on? Not Scripture, but Freud. That's pure Freud. Find me in Scripture that tells us that the reason why you're struggling with sin today is because of your childhood. What's the only root cause of our sinful behavior? Our sin nature. You see why it's so important to begin with theological anthropology? Yes, we're created in the image, in the image of God, which is, how we, uh, which is who we are, but we all have a sin nature, which is how we are. And so because we all have a sin nature, that wasn't a choice. We're all born that way, but the correct diagnosis is to begin and understand that everyone has a sin nature, and that's the problem. Not to say that things in your past affect you, not to say that Heaven forbid you experience abuse in your childhood. That does impact you today, but that is not what made you a sinner. Are you following me? Because when we deflect to the wrong problem, in other words, when we diagnose it incorrectly, it will lead to an incorrect treatment. Incorrect diagnosis leads to an incorrect treatment. And when we deflect it away from the main problem and say, oh, it's me and me, maybe because you're you know, your daddy didn't go to all of your soccer games, you know, or your mommy, you know, hugged you too much. That's why you're gay, or that's why you have same-sex attractions. That's just not biblical. The problem is sin, and Christ is the answer. That's the truest statement from Scripture. The problem is sin, and Christ is the answer. And anytime we deflect from that, you know what we're doing? 
we're stealing away the power of true change. That we need to recognize that there is power in the cross. There is power in submitting to the Lordship of Christ. There is power in the Holy Spirit. And by saying the problem is something else, you're stealing from that. So we need to have this correct diagnosis. But then third, it helps us answer this born gay question. Because you hear this all the time. Well, I'm born gay. This is, you know, I never chose this. I've been this way for as long as I remember. But if we start with theological anthropology, that who we are is we're created in God's image, how we are is we have a sin nature, we realize that how part didn't begin later in life. Like, did any of you choose maybe like when you were five or maybe three? Like, hey, mommy, I want to I sin nature. Why not? Got nothing better to do. Was a sin nature a choice? No. You're human. You have a sin nature. That's just the way it is. If you, if you want to talk about something that's innate, our sin nature is innate. It's how we are from birth, from the womb. And there's a lot of research. Even three weeks ago, it hit the national news that, man, they, you know, if, if you would read the headlines, it found out they, they, they actually found out something new, like, oh, you know, they found a gay gene or, or whatever. And if you actually read the whole article and the quotes from the actual researchers, you'll find out that actually they haven't found out much. They found out maybe a, a few additional possible markers. But actually, of all that genetic stuff that they, that they saw, it represented, some, I mean, it was almost like 1% of how the influence. I mean, it's very, very small. I do believe that genetics could play a role, and that doesn't affect my theology. Because of the fall, you realize the fall, the consequence of that, we're not just spiritual, but there's also, but it, it was physical as well. So... When we say that, oh, people are born gay, according to science, well, science actually hasn't shown that yet. We just, we just don't know yet. But what we do know is those of us who are people of the book, we know that we all are born with a sin nature. Does that mean that people then are born gay? No, I think that means that we are born with the predisposition I think we could be born with a predisposition toward gossiping, a predisposition toward alcoholism, a predisposition toward, you know, a pornography addiction, a predisposition possibly even toward same-sex attractions. But note, though the world wants to say that it's a predetermination, note that that's not the same thing as a predisposition. A predisposition is not a predetermination. But regardless of what the world says, I'm sure you have friends who are convinced, fully convinced, that they're born gay or that people are born gay. You could tell them, well, I mean, if you actually do the research, you'll see that it's inconclusive yet. It's very likely it could be genetics, but not genetics alone. It's not predetermined. But even though I know you think people are born gay, can I tell you something that Jesus says? that is so relevant to this question, are people born gay? That even though you might think people are born gay, the Lord Jesus Christ says, you must 
be born again. You must be born again. The old is gone, the new is come. Though you think you, more, you may be born an alcoholic, you must be born again. Though you think you may be born a liar, a cheater, you must be born again. That is not a message just for the gay community. That is a message for the whole world. The old is gone, the new is come. In Christ, you are a new creation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, I thank you for the new birth in Christ, by grace, through faith. God, thank you that you have revealed yourself through your word, that we know that we, who we are, is that we are image bearers of you, but how we are is we have a sin nature. And thank you, God, for sending your son, Jesus, who wasn't made in your image as we are, but Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God. And so, God, as we live our lives in the midst of our brokenness and sin nature, Lord, help us completely surrender to your Holy Spirit who abides in the elect. And Lord, help us, Father, help us to be more conformed into your likeness. God, we praise you. We, th we thank you. God, we love you. Help us to love you more than life. And we ask this and the powerful, matchless name of Jesus, the Messiah, and the people of God said, amen. amen. See you tonight at 730.